Hello and welcome to Bite Back Chats Books. Today on the podcast, we're turning our lens on the Royals with former MP and Cabinet member Norman Baker. Norman's book, And What Do You Do?, made waves last year with its examination of the Royal Family's finances, honours and the power they wield behind the scenes. And that was before Harry and Meghan. Here to talk a little bit more about it is Norman himself. Welcome. Norman Baker, uh, very warm welcome to the Virtual Bite Back podcast. Thank you. You're very welcome. Uh, we're here today to talk about your uh, book and what do you do, which came out last year and is now coming out in paperback, which I have had a read of and I find it very interesting and also a little bit worrying, if I'm frank. Um, it's a comprehensive look at the status of the royal family, but also the government and I guess archaic systems which uh, need a bit of an overhaul or a rethink. Um, so to get us started, could you give me a little bit of background about who you are and how you came to be an MP and then following on from that, how you came to be interested in the royal family? Well, I'm glad you said you found it interesting and uh, worrying because they're the two reactions I wanted to get from people Excellent. and the persuasion that we ought to change what we have into something better. Mm. Um, in terms of my background, um, I've got a rather esoteric background in a sense um very very background which included before i was a member of parliament i used to be a regional director for a record company running 20 odd shops in the west end and further beyond um i ran a wine shop i ran a railway station what's, I've your, been a what's your favorite job um well favorite job I, I, I liked running a record shop that was great fun just like nick harmby's high fidelity it was um <laughs> Uh, it was it was brilliant, but anyway, so that was a great job, and uh, I was also um, a parliamentary researcher for a time. Um, so I've had um, I had a very very career until I was uh, elected to Parliament in 1997, by which time I'd been leader of the council locally for six years, and then I spent 18 years as an MP, and uh, four of those, four and a half of those, as a minister. So how did you come to be? I guess I'm not sure interest is the right word in the royal family because I suppose the royal family is something that everyone's aware of from a very young age. But how did you kind of become interested in the royal family's status and the way in which they use their their power, I suppose? Well, I was aware from a very early age, really, that the royal family was uh, important to this country and uh, well ensconced, clearly, but also rather unaccountable. And I recall in particular... Back in about 1990, there was a settlement uh, for their finances going forward, which gave them a settlement way above the rate of inflation uh, at a time when everybody else was tightening their belts. And uh, not only that, but it was hugely welcomed by everybody in Parliament, apart from I think Dennis Skinner. Um, everybody else was saying how wonderful it was and what a good deal it was. It clearly wasn't a good deal. And Neil Kinnock's speech at the time as leader of the Labour Party was disgraceful in terms of the support he offered for this outrageous financial deal. And then you had, a, in the same decade, you had um, the hypocrisy, really, of Charles and Diana, um, you know, getting married and, and all the time having an affair with Camilla Parker Bowles and, and uh, behaving in that way to Diana. Uh, quite outrageous, really. Then you had the winds of fire. When was Windsor Castle caught on fire? And then they wanted the taxpayers to pay for the refurbishment, which the taxpayers stood up and said we're not paying. So I just thought this lot are somewhat arrogant, somewhat out of touch. There's a terrible sense of entitlement. They're getting a huge amount of public money. And actually, who's holding these people to account? And the answer was nobody is. So part of what the book is doing is to hold them to account. That's why it's called And What Do You Do? 
uh, what the royal family don't want you to know because there's quite a lot they don't want you to know. And my view is if people did know what's in the book, uh, they would change their minds about the royal family, as indeed many who've read the hardback have come back to me and said they have changed their minds. Because mm. um, you spoke up about this quite a few times when you were an MP, but you faced quite stiff pushback from the government and from Tony Blair. So can you talk a little bit about that and about, I guess, why you think that the government is so resistant to putting any kind of curbs on the royal family? Well, the first thing you do when you're elected as a member of parliament, elected by the people, is you have to take an oath to the unelected monarchy before you can take your seat. So even if you were elected on the basis of wanting to abolish a monarchy, I wasn't, but if you want, if you're elected on that basis, you cannot take your seat until you've pledged an oath of allegiance to the monarchy. Even if every single, if you have a political party whose manifesto says let's abolish the monarchy uh, and they secure a majority of seats, you still have to take an oath of allegiance in order to take that forward. And if you take it forward, it could be argued that's treasonable. So, you know, the the way in which the royal family is dug into our arrangements in this country is quite extraordinary and very different to how it is in countries like Sweden or Norway or Holland, where there are monarchies which exist. And where they are, they are clearly subservient to the Constitution. They they take an oath of allegiance to the Constitution in places like Sweden. Uh, Over here, we have an oath of allegiance to them. So it's quite different, really. And when the Queen was uh, enthroned in 1952, uh, what happened then was that she took an oath of allegiance to uphold her um, Christian duties as head of the Church of England. Democracy didn't feature anywhere at all in that ceremony. It wasn't even mentioned as a word. It doesn't come into the arrangement. So theoretically, the Queen has uh, absolute power in this country. Uh, of course, she doesn't exercise it, and no monarch has overridden the government since uh, the 18th century. But all the armed forces, for example, have to take an oath of allegiance to the Queen personally. That may not be a problem with the present incumbent, who has, by and large, carried out her duties constitutionally. But suppose that had happened with uh, Edward VIII, if he'd still been on the throne in 1940, hadn't been disappearing off because of Mr. Simpson. Suppose he was still there as king. And he had said, to the, and he was a Nazi sympathizer, of course. Mm. Suppose he said to the armed forces at that point, um, you know, I'm your king, you've taken an oath to me, I want you to lay down your weapons because we're going to do a deal with Hitler, which is what he wanted, Edward VIII. But what would have happened then? This is an outrageous situation to be in. So we have to have a different arrangement. So that's why I wanted to raise these matters in Parliament. But it's almost impossible to do so. There is a convention, as much as anything else, that you cannot, you know, take on the royal family in Parliament. It's seen as bad form and uh, unconstitutional. So people say nothing. And I was, I think, the only MP in my 18 years to initiate a debate on the royal family. And the only way I could do so um, was to tie this back to a financial document they had issued and, or agreed in 1993. That was the only lever I could find to get a debate on the royal family, which is extraordinary, but that's how it is. Now, in terms of where the political parties are, which you ask about Blair, the Conservatives will, will uh, do anything to keep the royal family in situ and agree to any demand they make. That's the bottom line. And we've seen that historically, and we've seen it recently with uh, some outrageous um, allocations of money made by George Osborne in about 2012 and subsequently not undone by um, Theresa May's government or indeed by uh, Boris Johnson's. Uh, The Labour Party tends to be much more sceptical about the royal family 
but they take the view it's it's um, vote loser to to do anything about it, so they keep quiet. Uh, you know, people like Alison Campbell were, were were declared Republicans, but they didn't do anything about it because he regarded it as the 189th on the list of priorities, mm. and one which which um, could only lose votes. So they let things run. I mean, what Gordon Brown and Tony Blair did do was uh, prevent the um, use of public funds from uh, accelerating even further when you became prime minister and chancellor and they put a block on any further increase and it was held at the level of 7.9 million which um had, had wow. a, where it was in 1997 was held till 2010 at that level in fact gordon brown even managed to pull back some of that by transferring some responsibility from the state to the palace but of course under the financial arrangements the royal family has the money they have can only ever go up it can never go down so, um, which is an extraordinary position to be in. So no matter what happens to the country, they've got a guaranteed sum of money which can never go down. So, you know, they didn't do anything about it, really, apart from trying to put a lid on it. And uh, since, since the Labour Party has been out of power, I'm afraid the uh, amount of money goes to the royal family has increased dramatically. So how did the debate go out of interest then? It was, a, it was an, an adjournment debate, which means that the only people in the, in, in the parliament at the time or in the chamber were me and the minister replying and, and one of the government whips on the front bench. That's what it was. It was held at an inconvenient time at the end of the day. Um, and uh, when, when I had half an hour only for the debate, 50 minutes being 50 minutes of the minister. So obviously it changed nothing in terms of the government's response. But what it did do was put on the record some of the concerns I had and which were shared by the members of parliament. You know, the thing is, if you ask, you know, even by taking the population at large, about 20% probably are declared Republicans in the population at large. If you assume that that is the same figure in Parliament, you would expect 100 MPs to be Republican uh, in nature. And there probably are MPs of that, of that magnitude who are Republican in nature. But they all keep quiet about it. They mm. keep quiet about it. Apart from me and people like Dennis Skinner, uh, you couldn't find probably 10 uh, who were declared um, you know, hostile to the monarchy as it presently is. Because people decided politically it wasn't worth it, it wasn't worth a candle to take them on. Hmm. It seems incredible that there's uh, a family that is so is never held to account and has no sense of like accountability at all. A lot of your book focuses on the the finances of the royal family. So could you kind of just give a bit of a brief overview of where it is their money comes from? Well, in one word, us. <laughs> it comes from us. Um, if you go back to 1760, and you have to go back to 1760, before that, um, the, the money which the state had was interchangeable with the money which the monarch had, because the monarch was, was ultimately the only person who mattered in the kingdom. Mm. Um, and in 1760, uh, because the king was running short of money, there was a deal struck. And under that deal, um, royal lands, which had existed un under the control of the king, were handed to Parliament as public assets, the so-called crown estates. And in return for that handing over of land, um, the parliament decided to give the king an annual amount of money to spend on whatever he needed to spend it on, which is called a civil list. And before 1760, the king had been responsible for funding a whole range of things, including uh, the civil service, the security services, um, uh, and basically the functions of government were funded by the king directly and that was a huge burden so that was relieved to the king and handed to parliament and in return he got a he handed over the lands that he owned or many of the lands he owned to parliament and that system survived 
until 2012. Mm. Um, it wasn't perfect. Uh, there were a whole lot of things wrong with it. But, I mean, essentially, it was a system that, that worked tolerably well until that point. And then what happened was um, George Osborne, under pressure from Prince Charles and others in the royal family, uh, changed it. So we now have a sovereign grant. And that sovereign grant means the civil list has gone and been replaced by an arrangement whereby a percentage of the money from the Crown Estates now funds the royal family. And that's totally wrong for two reasons. One is that the Crown Estates are not any, anything to do with the royal family. They were handed over to the public in 1760. They are not royal lands. The fact that they're called Crown Estates implies some royal connection. But the royal connection is an historical one, not an actual one. So the idea that they could somehow have a claim on these Crown Estates is totally improper and unconstitutional. And the second reason it's wrong is because the Crown Estates is a very profitable uh, property company producing lots of money for the state and it produces a return above inflation every year and because royal finances can never go down only up or stay the same that means that every year since 2012 uh, the royal family has pulled in um, a sum of money way in excess of uh, of inflation and this is the time of course after after the banking crisis when everybody else has been suffering and they've been getting above inflation increases. So the figures are, in 2012, when the um, Crown Estates, well, 2010, uh, they were going from 7.9 million a year from the civil list. By 2012, that had gone to 31 million uh, with the introduction of the, of the sovereign grant. By 2018-19, it was 82.8 million, more than 10 times what the civil list had been only about eight years earlier. I mean, they're laughing all the way to the bank, these people. Yeah, it's incredible. I, I know some people say that um, the tourism that the royal family brings in offsets the amount that they earn. Do you think that's like a, a valid point? No, in a word. <laughs> uh, for two reasons. One is, I really don't think we should base our constitutional arrangements on what tourists do. I mean, that's the most peculiar approach to, to how we run a country. Mm. But the second thing is, what is a palace in Europe which has the most visitors? And the answer to that is, it's Palace of Versailles, and the French abolished a monarchy in 1848. Mm. We, don't, we don't need, actually, the royal family to be living in Buckingham Palace to make money from Buckingham Palace. We don't. However, there's an arrangement with Buckingham Palace, which is most interesting. The Queen has been arguing that Buckingham Palace needs a refit, and it probably does need a refit of some sort. Originally, that was going to be around £10 million. By 2015, that had multiplied itself to 359 million, 359 million pounds. And the palace went along to the new prime minister and new chancellor, Theresa May and Philip Hammond, and said, can we have 359 million pounds? And they said, yes. And it, I think the floor must have opened up as a royal, as a royal courtiers couldn't believe, their, couldn't believe their luck. The mm. government had agreed to everything. 359 million pounds to refit Buckingham Palace. But here's the rub. Uh, the Queen's been taking money from the entrance fees for those who visit the palace, um, which comes to millions and millions every year. Mm. And do you know what? We're paying for 100% of the refurbishment, and she's keeping the money from the ticket sales. Wow, uh, that's incredible. Their money then is coming directly from the public, but yet, how much power does the royal family still have? Because I know that, in theory at least, they are figureheads. A lot of stuff in the book covers kind of their, um, I'm not sure what the word is, shady dealings, I suppose, behind closed doors with the government in terms of 
wills and in terms of putting pressure on you know to pass certain laws well the answer is you have quite a lot of soft power mm. in terms of influencing matters and um in particular they have power to enrich themselves at the expense of the public purse that's what it comes down to uh, for example, they're exempt from the, the death duties from when the Queen Mother died. There were no death duties paid on, on the amount of um, estate passed to the Queen. It's perfectly proper, in my view, that assets which belong to the state um, should be exempt from death duties. And I don't think you should pay death duties on Buckingham Palace, for example, because that's there to facilitate the functions of the head of state. But why not pay death duties on the jewels owned by the Queen Mother? Why, why were they exempt? Uh, we probably lost £25 million in death duties from the Queen Mother not paying uh, or not paying an inheritance tax, which would have been due on her, on her estate. Why should one of the richest people in the, in the, in the country be exempt from death duties? Mm. And of course, the, the, the response of the royal family to um, these matters is not to try to reform themselves, it's to cover them up. It's to cover everything up so people don't find out. It's why they've been very keen to exempt themselves from freedom of information legislation. It's why alone in the country, uh, their wills are sealed. Why are their wills sealed? The opening of wills is essential defense in law to make sure wills are, are not uh, corrupted um, and that due process is followed. But because there was an embarrassing incident in 1911, I think it was, and there was an application to the court to seal a particular royal will, now we have the situation where all royal wills are sealed. And, of course, ironically, that decision was taken in secret by a secret little tribunal uh, involving the royal family and one member of the government in about 2003. So why should they be secret? Why shouldn't we know what they're passing on? But, of course, they like them to be secret because if we actually knew how much money they have, people would be outraged. People would turn around and say, why are we giving these people millions every year when they are the richest people in the country? The Queen is probably worth... I don't know what she's worth exactly, but it's worth billions. The Queen personally is worth billions. Um, there was a deal done in 1952 by Churchill for the new Queen when she took up the throne uh, to exempt her from taxation from her investments. Uh, everybody else pays that. Why should she be exempt from taxation on her personal investments? But that mm -hmm. deal was reached. The Mail, um, in about 1998, I think it was, made a calculation, it's in the book anyway, made a calculation that the Queen had uh, benefited to the tune of about £800 million from that one exemption, that's one exemption. And of course, for 40 years, she paid no income tax. You know, why should these people be exempt from taxation that everybody else pays? If the Queen is, is worth billions, which she is, and all the royal families, all the royal members of the royal family are worth at least £20 million, whether it's Prince Harry or Prince William or Prince Philip, who started life in, a, in an orange basket uh, and is going to end his life as a multimillionaire, Charles, all these people are worth millions upon millions. Where does that come from? They haven't been earning it. It's either come from money handed out from the state, from the public purse, or from tax breaks given to them, which are available to nobody else. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So the government and the royal family have kind of evolved alongside each other for quite you know, hundreds of years now. So I imagine there's quite a lot of archaic as the royal family is. I'm sure the government has also some very outdated institutions that kind of need reform. Um, so you were uh, famously, well, I'm not sure, famously on the Privy Council. So yes. can you talk a little bit about 
uh, your experience of being on that and kind of the role it fulfills in terms of like government? Well, the Privy Council was originally um, the advisory body for the monarch going back centuries and it still exists. And it exists now to perform a range of interesting functions. Some of those relate to, for example, um, judicial judgments in the West Indies, or monitoring the laws of the Channel Islands, or dealing with um, some of our universities. So there are live functions which it still has. But it's also used by government to um, introduce laws, to push things through quickly, uh, and sometimes to bypass Parliament. And when I first started looking to the Privy Council in about um, 2000, um, I asked for details of the, or a record of the decisions taken in the previous six months. I was told there were so many they couldn't uh, uh, assemble them all for me. <laughs> I mean, what are these people doing? You know, I mean, why are they taking decisions that we don't know about? And when I looked into it, there were decisions taken which actually related to matters which clearly should have been before Parliament and mm. hadn't been. So the Privy Council is used by the government, not by the royal family, but by the government, as a way of bypassing Parliament half the time. So when I was invited to go into the Privy Council by Nick Clegg, um, and I have to say I laughed, I thought it was quite funny he'd invited me. Were you well known um, for your kind of Republican views at that point then? Yes, absolutely, and mm. also known as a general troublemaker, which is a badge of honour I wear. Um, David Cameron called me the most annoying man in Parliament, which is a, a great thing. <laughs> Did you respond to that? <laughs> Oh, that was fantastic. I put it in my book. So I was invited to the Privy Council and I was in two minds because first of all I thought it was absurd this thing still exists. But secondly I thought well we ought to know what's going on so I thought well I'll just accept this uh, invitation. Um, and uh, anyway my mischievous side says it would annoy some conservatives to know that I was on there and they, they wanted to be on there desperately and I was on there so that was quite funny. So I went along there and uh, I mean, the whole thing was really, really quite absurd. And, and it's all secret, of course. And the instructions which you are given for the ceremony um, are, are supposed to be secret. Well, they're in my book at the back as an appendix because people should know. Why shouldn't they know it's a part of the public constitution? Why shouldn't they know? So that's in there, along with the oath you, you have to take or actually not take. It's administered to you by some functionary. And you go along there. And the Privy Council meeting is in this rather depressing room in, in Buckingham Palace and um, all the, uh, the members of Privy Council were there at any particular time. There was about, I think, for about 10 from memory at the time I was there. Not all the Privy Council chants at the same time, there's about 600 of us, so uh, it's generally government ministers plus people who are, be, who are to be inducted who are there. And they stand, the members of Privy Council who are there stand in a kind of arc um, which, if it were extended indefinitely, would form a massive circle around the room. And they, they stand because Queen Victoria, I think it was, decided that nobody should sit down in her presence. So everybody stands for the whole meeting. Uh, the Queen sits down. <coughs> to be fair to her, it looks like a rather uncomfortable chair she sits on, but she sits down. And then we go through the business of the meeting. And the Queen either says, um, I think it's referred if it's going to be sent somewhere else for discussion, or I think it's agreed, I think it's a word she uses, for anything which she, which she agrees to. Of course, she is rubber stamping all this. She doesn't have any say in the matter, but um, that's the function of it. It's, it's a way of the, for the government to um, push through embarrassing business it doesn't want Parliament to know about. What are your, first, what are your, your thoughts, I suppose, on uh, after your first Privy Council meeting? 
Uh, well, I mean, first and only Privy Council meeting because um, those of us who are inducted don't get to go along again unless we're government ministers, um, you know, high government ministers. So when I was there, uh, there were, I think, Nick Clegg was there, Deputy Prime Minister, Osborne was there as Chancellor. Um, I've forgotten who else was there, but um, two or three only uh, ministers were there. That's all that goes along at any particular time. It's all decided in advance, and it's a, it's a, it's a kind of historical formality, but it's got a, a vicious purpose, as I've indicated, which is to bypass Parliament, in my view. It should be abolished. There's no purpose in the Royal, in the Privy Council. These things should be handled by a parliamentary committee mm. um, in open session. Uh, they really should. Mm. Next time mm. I'm invited is when um, uh, the Queen dies and um, the whole Privy Council gets invited along to uh, cheer Charles to the rafters. Gosh, that's uh, something to look forward to. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, what a, I mean, this is quite a broad question, but then we've covered, we've touched on the Privy Council. Um, but you've also talked about a couple more institutions. I suppose, like in Parliament that you feel should be modernised or removed altogether. Can you just kind of cover those a little bit and why you think they should be uh, modernised? Well, I mean, we have, we have a situation in Britain where uh, you know, the, the functions which existed centuries ago are still there. The, the monarchy is an imperial monarchy. Uh, no other monarchy is an imperial monarchy anymore. The, the, other imperial, the other imperial monarchies have gone. The French, the Germans, the Russians, the Austrians, they've all gone. The monarchies which exist are either constitutional monarchies, like the uh, Scandinavian or, or um, Dutch ones. Um, ours isn't. Um, so a whole lot of things continue from centuries ago, including the honour system, which um, is unamended except to take out the honours which relate to the empire, as it were, which were particular to um, peculiar to say in India, they've been removed. But otherwise, the, the honours which exist and are, are handed out are the same ones that were handed out centuries ago. They, they, they are bizarre. And they're all, they, they are just baubles handed out originally by the king to carry favour, mm. now handed out by the government to carry favour. Um, most of these are determined by the government, of course, not by the, by the royal family or by the queen. It's extraordinary that we still have an honour system which was basically put in place in um, the 14th century and some of the honours like the uh, Order of the Garter are still there from, from those days. But you know, we, do we really want to have people who are Knight Grand Cross and Knight Commanders and Knight Bachelors, let alone uh, people who are um, the Order of the British Empire? What is the British Empire these days? Rock all is what Ronnie Barker called it in 1978, yeah. I think it was. It was about it was even less now than it was back in those days. I mean, these are all absurd honours, um, uh, and they haven't changed over the centuries. The one which is worth having, in my view, is the Order of Merit, uh, which is the one which recognises the great and the good in the country. Those, those who are on there merit their inclusion. So you've got deserving types like Sir Tim Berners-Lee, the originator of the World Wide Web, the artist David Hockney, the playwright Sir Tom Stoppard, and there's a limited of only 24 on, on who can be in order of merit at any one time. So it's much sought after in its dead man's shoes. It is men, by the way. The only women on there are uh, Betty Boothroyd, the former speaker and the mechanical engineer dame and Dowling. But hang on a minute. In this 24 intellectual giants, we've got the Duke of Edinburgh. He's popped up there. How is he an intellectual giant? Uh, we've got Prince Charles on there as well. So when he takes over as king, he'll be on his own body as the order of merit. You know, why is it that these people feel they can give themselves medals and give themselves honours when they've done nothing to deserve them? You know, when Prince Charles goes along to an event, 
he's got a choice of I think it's 35 different medals he can wear and he has to choose which medal to wear at any particular occasion you know you're so lopsided when he wears all these medals you have to get propped up on one side I should think you know <laughs> where do these medals all come from you know what what marvelous activities have he undertaken to justify these medals nothing is the answer I mean the last time he's got he's he's got he's got the highest rank now in the Navy the Air Force um, and the Army the last thing he did militarily was, was, was command a coastal minesweeper about 30, 40 years ago. Why has he got all these medals? You know, I just think that the values of medals which are given out for genuine activity on behalf of this country. Many people, I'm in favor of medals. Many people have worked very hard um, to deserve what they've got, whether it's an MBE or an OBE. Many people in the military have risk their lives frankly and deserve their medals why should the royal family get all these outranking medals of admirals and high admirals just because of members of the royal family i think it devalues the medal system there have been obviously throughout the years stories about the royal family kind of being above the law prince philip infamously rolling his car uh, and getting off scot-free and now we have uh, prince andrew and his association with jeffrey epstein do you think that it's possible that the royal family, like this could be the tipping point, that this could be the moment which they actually aren't above the law anymore? Do you think it's becoming increasingly difficult for the royal family to kind of stay above things and that have their this in touch this untouchable aura? Do you think that's threatened? Well, the Queen is literally above the law because all actions in law are taken on behalf in the name of the Queen, Regina versus whoever it happens to be. Um, mm. So when the Queen was spotted driving without a seatbelt, which she was shortly after Prince Philip was being spotted driving without a seatbelt, of course she could not be prosecuted. Mm. Uh, the Queen could commit murder and she could not be prosecuted. That seems to me to be an extraordinary situation. And again, at variance with the monarchies in Europe, where um, they are held to account. We're seeing now some considerable interest in the former king in Spain, who abdicated, in terms of his money laundering activities. He's been held to account for that. That couldn't happen over here. So the, 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 the constitutional position is, is quite different. Well, I mean, if, if you're a, a Republican, then you have two major assets which have been helping your case recently. One is called Prince Andrew, and one is called Prince Harry, uh, because they're doing considerable damage to the image of the royal family. Now, most people in the country have a lot of time for the Queen. They think she's performed her duties religiously, is perhaps the right word, um, but dutifully, and she's done what she should do when she took her coronation oath in 1952. So uh, nobody wants to, I think, very much rock the boat uh, when uh, the Queen is still on the throne. But um, I think the respect that people have for the Queen is not mirrored by respect for the royal family anymore as an institution. Mm -hmm. um, and that's because we've had instant after instant involving the royal family, whether it's Prince Charles and, and Diana, the way you treated Diana, or whether it's uh, now lately, Harry and Meghan uh, wanting to have their cake and eat it, wanting to be supported financially, but at the same time live their own life in LA. Or whether, of course, it's Prince Andrew, who is a, a walking disaster. Yes, and uh, Prince Andrew's um, activities demonstrate what happens if you allow members of the royal family to be above the law, to be not held to account, to be exempt from freedom of information, and therefore to behave in an arrogant manner which uh, just oozes self-entitlement when they think they can get away with things. And when the chickens come home to roost and they find they can't, the place looks more horrendous 
that it would have done had they been subject to freedom of information and proper procedures um, over the years. So, you know, the royal family's habit um, and knee-jerk reaction always is to try to hide things and to paint over rotten wood. Mm. And they get away with it most of the time. But when finally they don't get away with it, then the picture which emerges, like the picture of Dorian Gray in the attic in the Oscar Wilde story, is more horrendous than it would otherwise have been. So, you know, Prince Andrew has got himself in a, in a huge mess. And I don't have any sympathy for him, to be perfectly frank. It's not just the Epstein stuff, although that's going to run and run. But it's not just that, uh, unsavory and uh, that's all is. It's the fact that people I find, find his explanation incredible, literally incredible. I find it very difficult to believe that um, he can have his arm around this girl, she was a girl, and, and uh, then deny having ever met her when photographic evidence exists. They find it difficult to believe that he can remember nothing of any value, but is able to pinpoint exactly a trip to the Pizza Express in Woking on a particular evening. You know, these things just don't cut with the public at large. So um, Prince Andrew is not believed by the public when he comes out with his explanation. That's a major problem for him and for the royal family. But, you know, it goes way beyond that. My concern with Prince Andrew uh, is set out in the book, in the chapter, The Grand Old Duke of Slees, goes through his activities over many years when he was dealing with dodgy regimes across the world and apparently doing so not on behalf of this country, um, but on behalf of himself. Um, and we saw, for example, that his house, uh, Sunning Hill Park, was up for sale for uh, £12 million, a house which um, the Queen gave him um, and Fergie to live in when they got married. Ghastly place, by the way. It looks like a kind of off-the-shelf Tesco. Um, but it was up for sale for, um, for £12 million. If you got £12 million, why would you buy that house? It's a horrible house. So, therefore, nobody was buying it. It sat on the market for ages. Then, lo and behold, suddenly it was sold for £15 million, £3 million above the asking price, by uh, the son or son-in-law of, of a dictator from Kazakhstan. You know, and, and why would he do that? Why would this person buy this house, which is pretty unattractive, for three million pounds above the asking price? And then why would he not live in it? And then why some years later would he demolish it, mm. having never lived in it? Yeah. That just strikes me as a bit peculiar. And where's Prince Andrew's money come from? He earns errands. He gets 249,000 pounds a year from the Queen, uh, from the Duchy of Lancaster, which, by the way, she offsets against tax, which we then pay for indirectly. Uh, and he gets £20,000 a year for his naval pension. How can he afford to spend £7.5 on refurbishing his residence in Windsor Great Park? And how can he have managed to secure a £30 million Swiss chalet? The sums don't add up. So we have to ask ourselves, where has Prince Andrew's money come from? And what has he done in return to get that money? My guess for the public at large is, in Britain, is they're prepared to have a royal family, probably support a royal family, most of them, but they want a royal family, there's value for money, that doesn't have a whole lot of hangers-on, and that follows the same rules of law as everybody else does. In mm. other words, what they want is a royal family of the, say, of the sort we have in Scandinavia and in Holland. And my advice to Prince Charles will be change the royal family into that, and then you will secure its future. If you don't, then you risk it falling apart and being taken away from you in due course by the population at large. Yeah, absolutely. Sage advice. We have to hope that they listen to our podcast. 
Well, thank you so much for taking the time to um, chat to me and to all of our all of our listeners. And your book, uh, And What Do You Do? It's available in paperback uh, later this month. So everybody, do please go and check it out and find out just what the Royal Family's been getting up to because I can promise you it's a lot more than we've been able to cover in this podcast. That is for certain. Thank you, Vicky. Thanks for listening to another Bite Back podcast. If listening to Norman has you intrigued to find out more about the Royal Family, then why not check out his book, And What Do You Do? It's out in paperback from all good shops and from our website. And don't forget to like and subscribe before you go. Until next time.